0: Some of that was even true. Yeah, that's that's the most painful thing ever to sit and listen to someone talk about you like that. Um, but uh, yeah, you know, I think we are we're really thankful for this church body. Thankful to to know that adding Trent are being loved and cared for down here and uh, shepherded well and loved on by you all. And we've expressed our thanks to a number of you for that as well. So um, it was it was sad when they told us they were. Leaving Spokane. All of our other children are, are older and have also left the nest, and uh, so it was sad when they told us they were leaving, but it was reassuring to know they were coming down here where I knew they were going to be part of a great church family uh, and be cared for well, so thank you for that. It's been a great privilege to be uh, with your church family this weekend uh, and to bring the Word of God to you this morning, and, and I'm kind of going to try to build a little bit on what we talked about on Friday night and yesterday morning, build on those concepts of the authority and sufficiency of God's Word for life transformation. But if if you weren't here on Friday and Saturday, you won't be lost. We're going to deal with the text that's in front of us, and it it stands alone as a very practical text to help us know how to live our lives. Right? That's exactly what, what Paul is describing, the life that I live. Here's how I do it, and we are called to live our lives uh, before the face of God, and so he's got some things in here for us to to learn. I want to just sort of have you brace yourself for a, a long introduction and a very short outline and then a practical discussion of the implications of these rich truths here, wrapped up in that statement, the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith. In the Son of God. We're looking at one of my favorite passages, actually, that I love to uh, walk through and talk through with uh, people that I counsel and uh, I'm trying to help. Um, It really culminates in verse 19, 20, 21, the end of this chapter. Through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ, and it's no longer I who live, but Christ. Lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith. I live trusting. I live believing in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself up for me. Uh, one of my favorite passages, one that I think is often quoted, but not as often understood. And even if you understand what the words mean, uh, even less do people think carefully enough about the implications of those words. In fact, I think this verse lends itself to a lot of Christian cliches. That's that's why it's often quoted and not understood. Some people talk about being crucified with Christ, but if you were to ask them, you know, what what is it? What does that mean? How are you crucified with Christ? You look very alive to me right now. Uh, So in what sense are you dead or have died in the past? Let Let me know. I think other times we hear people say Little cliches, like you just got to let Jesus live through you, right? We're like, oh, that that sounds spiritual, it sounds wonderful, but what does it mean, and how do you you do it, right? And, of course, he he says, the life that I now live, I live by faith. That's another little cliche. You just got to live by faith that I think, again, we can say it and not stop to ask ourselves, what does it really mean to live by faith? faith or it's kissing cousin, you just got to have faith, right? Um, And which can even be less uh, certain and very nebulous. Um, And this whole idea of union with Christ, which we spent a significant amount of time yesterday morning talking about from Romans 6, what is our union with Christ? I mean, that is a rich theological truth, but even that can just become a cliche if it's thrown out without explanation, without understanding and application. So laying aside the difficulty of truly understanding the meaning of some of those phrases in a practical way, I think we have the added dynamic that living a life of faith uh, is not a spiritual bed of roses, is it? We live in a sin-cursed world. Life is hard sometimes. The phrase, walk by faith and not by sight, that, that phrase is actually in the context of persecution and martyrdom. Right, I mean, we throw it out there in much more trite situations than that. But the situations that we deal with aren't, aren't trite, and they aren't easy. Living by faith can be hard. Maybe you've been battling that besetting sin of yours for years and years and years. You've struggled with anger, or overeating, or lust, or laziness. And you know that's my besetting sin. That's the one that gets me every time. That's the one I can't seem to overcome. And it doesn't feel like Christ is living his life through you, does it? You're starting to wonder, actually, if you have faith, (laughs) not if you're living by faith. How do you live by faith in the Son of God if that's you? Years and years of battling with a besetting sin. Maybe the besetting sin isn't yours. Maybe the besetting sin that plagues you belongs to your spouse or your your children or your grown children. And you're just tired. You're tired of just having to face the reality of this sin that that plagues you from the outside. You don't know how to face them. You You don't know what to expect from one day to the next. And you feel like you have to cover for their foolishness or risk public shame, maybe even scandal? What does living by faith look like when it seems like doing the right thing, maybe exposing their sin, maybe reaching out for help? What does living by faith look like when the right thing looks like it's going to cause your circumstances to be even worse than they are right now? What does it mean to live by faith in the Son of God then? Maybe you're a young person here today, teenager or a teenager, or whatever they call them nowadays. You're convinced that your parents <clears throat> have rules and hold you to standards that no one else's parents have. It feels oppressive to you. And at times, it's just plain embarrassing. I'm looking for you all hiding. In your <laughs> hiding behind your person in front of you. It's sometimes it's just plain embarrassing socially and maybe, maybe you're sneaking around the rules because of it. You know you should have a submissive heart but you don't want to. You don't want that all the time. What does living by faith look like when you think your parents are unfair or unreasonable? How do you live by faith then? Parents your child displays daily foolishness. Maybe constant foolishness is what it feels like to you. You know you're called to faithfully teach them and discipline them, and it's, it's overwhelming, and you've, you've sought help, and all the standard advice just doesn't seem to work for you. What does believing and trusting, what does living by faith in the Son of God look like when it seems like faithfulness itself isn't working? Then what does it look like? Or maybe you've got a chronic physical problem. Maybe a a chronic physical problem with no diagnosis. No foreseeable solution. Constant pain every day and seemingly no way to escape it. What does living by faith look like when your problems don't even have definition? let alone a solution. Maybe you've struggled with the ups and downs emotionally of anxiety or, or depression. How do you live by faith? How do you press forward believingly, trustingly toward God-given responsibilities in life when, when some days you don't feel like you have the courage or the energy to take the next step, even get out of bed? What is living by faith mean? look like then. Perhaps for you, the greatest struggle is just a crisis of faith. It's that you you read your Bible, and you pray, and you listen to preaching, but you just never seem to take that step forward. You don't, you don't seem to see that, that growth in your, your understanding, or your passion, or your zeal for God, or even in your obedience to His Word. What does living by faith mean when doing what you think you should be doing just feels spiritually flat. And I'll bet most of us have been there at some point. When you lack the joy and zeal, you think you think everyone else has. Well, this text is Paul's pithy answer to those questions. Now, he doesn't apply it specifically to all those situations, so I... I hope I'm going to try to help you do that at least a little bit today. At least give you a shove in the right direction for how to think and how to uh, respond in situations like those. Respond actively and positively and, and faithfully, believingly, trustingly, right? Living by faith, trust, belief. In a sense, this passage, Galatians 2.20, is is kind of a a spiritual snapshot of Romans chapter 6 which we spent a whole hour talking about yesterday morning it is the rich salvation truths of Romans 6 shoved into a few short statements in a way that i actually is helpful because it helps us to recall it quickly and 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 practically how we should think and how we re- should respond living by faith that that once i hope I help you understand that. You're going you're gonna to be able to go, all right, what does it mean to live by faith? And you'll begin to think in a certain way that reflects the truth of this passage and the truth of Roman 6. And then apply it to real life. Real life in a sin-cursed world like the one we've been describing where sin and pain and heartache and conflict and apathy and despair might tempt us to just give up on spiritual growth. Or just think spiritual stability is just too hard to find. I, I should just fake it. everyone else is probably doing that too let 's talk about the context here because this isn't this isn't a uh well never take it never study a verse out of its context. You know that so let's look at the context of this the bulk of of paul's letter to the Galatians up to this point is really Paul has outlined a bunch of personal history of his own calling and ministry which is which is given in order to show to the readers and to us, the authority of his message and of his office as an apostle. His message and apostleship had come under fire by some Jews who had professed faith in Christ. Uh, They had come from Jerusalem. We we read earlier they'd come from James uh, in verse 12. Um, But they hadn't really completely given up Old Testament law-keeping as a rule of life. And beginning in in this section, starting in verse 11 that we read, Paul recounts a situation where he confronted Cephas, Peter, publicly because Peter's behavior was undermining the gospel. He says it's a gospel issue, and we'll talk about why. And and that behavior was drawing others along with him, and they were all giving in to these law-keeping demands. These men that had come from Jerusalem were asking, requiring, assuming that they should participate in this Old Testament law-keeping. One of the so-called laws that these false teachers were advocating was essentially a man-made standard, actually, of Jews not eating with Gentiles. That wasn't a biblical standard. Survey the Old Testament law and find me a passage where it says Jews can't eat with Gentiles. No. Jews couldn't eat certain foods. And... We're good Gentiles, and we love those foods, right? I mean, lobster and crab and bacon and pork, we love those foods. I suspect the ancient world did too. So maybe those foods were just served so often they finally said, I I give up, it's too tempting to eat the bacon. I'm just not going to eat with the Gentiles anymore. Let's make it a rule. Maybe that's how it happened. It probably wasn't quite like that. But in exaggerated zeal, this is what Jewish custom and practice had become by the time of Christ and, and the apostles. And it wasn't God's intention under the old covenant. It certainly wasn't a divine requirement, uh, even under the new covenant, which God himself makes, makes clear in Acts chapter 10 and 11. We read the story about how God threw a vision to Peter, to Peter himself, that we read in Acts 10 and 11, declared that these kinds of standards were not to be followed this way, saying what God has cleansed, no longer consider unholy. He told Peter specifically, you can eat that stuff. So if, if clearly under the new covenant, God had altered the standard of what you were allowed to eat, then that false standard of who you could eat it with would certainly have also been set aside. But Peter apparently had a short memory or just was susceptible to peer pressure, right? Which is apparently what it, what it looks like. And so, long story short, we read about Peter in Galatians 2.12. Before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles, verse 12. But, but when they came, he drew back, and he separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. He was afraid of these guys. He didn't want to offend them. He didn't want to get on their bad side. And other Jewish Christians followed his bad example, verse 13. The rest joined him in that hypocrisy. Even Barnabas was carried away by the hypocrisy. It says, refusing to eat with their Gentile brothers in Christ out of fear of these strong-minded, self-willed circumcision party Christians is what uh, most commentators refer to them as. They were also requiring circumcision, which Paul will talk about later. Notice, though, that Paul says this is hypocrisy. This was hypocrisy. Now, how was it hypocritical. Hypocritical is about pretense. It's about pretending. It's about saying one thing is true but doing another. And by, by living and eating well they were saying on the one hand, so here's the gospel right? They were saying you can be accepted by God on the basis of faith alone. That's the gospel. That's what Peter would have been preaching too. But on the other hand, they were living based on the notion that your acceptance by God and others must be based on what you eat and who you eat with. There's the the hypocrisy, the inconsistency of saying our acceptance by God is by faith alone, but I have to eat a certain way or with certain people in order to be accepted. There's there's the hypocrisy. It's, It's an inconsistency it's pretense peter was doing it just for show he was doing it to make those circumcision party people happy in fact paul, paul knew paul knew that peter didn't hold to those standards in his diet and company he he had been for some time as paul says been living like a gentile that's why if you being a jew live like the gentiles hey hey peter let me remind you you've been eating that food and eating with those people for a while now right and you're a jew So Paul called him out on that inconsistency. He says this hypocrisy is undermining the gospel. So it was a serious issue. Verse 14. I saw that you were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel. And again, it's because what he was saying about being accepted by faith was inconsistent about what he was doing. I'm accepted only if I keep these laws or rules that 's why Paul says it's a gospel issue that 's why the what you eat and who you eat with stuff was so important because in that context it easily confused that reality that gospel reality of whether you come to God and are accepted by God on the basis of faith alone or whether you come to God and are accepted by God based on keeping certain outward standards of conduct which were either either clearly or only loosely defined by the actual Old Testament law, some obviously more clearly than others. Circumcision, eh, it was clear, right? But eating with a Gentile wasn't. Paul's greater point in Galatians is that neither of those behaviors is a legitimate way to think about being accepted by God. Now, after the rebuke, Paul records in 11 through 14, he provides the theological explanation in verses 15 through 21 for why that rebuke was so absolutely necessary, why this is clearly a gospel issue. And we know verse 15 is uh, an explanation and not part of the rebuke because of the grammar that's employed there. I'll I'll spare you the details. Jared would love to describe it for you later. Um, But I'll not spare you the summary of Paul's explanation, which logically ends with that statement we're going to be looking at in detail in, in verse 20. Again, all of this is setting the context for that wonderful passage. Here's how Paul explains the theological basis for why Peter's refusal to eat with the Gentiles was so important. The gospel asserts the opposite of what Peter's actions implied. The gospel asserts that no Old Testament law-keeping is necessary to have right-standing before God, keeping the law can't make you right with God. Keeping the law can't maintain your being right with God. Man's abilities to keep rules does not impress God. Never has, never will. And that's, that's true no matter what your race or religion. Paul says in verse 16 that even though they were Jewish by birth, they were aware that their efforts at keeping the Jewish law could not save them. Were Jews by nature, he says, by birth, and not sinners from among the Gentiles. We, we did enter into the world with certain privilege. Nevertheless, we know this, that a man is not justified by the works of the law, through, but through faith in Jesus Christ. Even we have believed in Christ Jesus, so that we may be justified by faith in Christ, and not by the works of the law. Since by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified. So, so clear. A man is not justified by the works of the law. We have faith in Jesus Christ alone. We are justified by faith in Christ alone. Essential, fundamental truths. And Paul knows that's naturally going to give rise to a question, which is really an objection. Paul does this so often in his writings. like He he foresees the objection or the question that someone's going to make to his argument, and so he addresses it head on. Verse 17, but if while seeking to be justified in Christ, if, if justification is through Christ alone and doesn't have anything to do with Old Testament law, we ourselves have also been found sinners. Is Christ then a, a minister of sin? Are, are you saying if we're justified by faith in Christ alone and there's, there's no place for law keeping, then we're just going to become a bunch of law breakers? Is, is that. I mean, if, if you're saying faith in Christ alone turns us into a lawbreaker, then Christ is a minister of sin. Right? That's, he's like, that's what you're going to ask me. And his answer is punchy. May it never be. May, again, you know, I taught the same phrase he uses in Romans 6, that we talked about yesterday. It's the absolute strongest way to say no. No, you have it wrong. May it never be. the gaps in Paul's theology of the Old Testament are going to be filled in 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 chapter 3, the gap that isn't fully described here. But he does tell us clearly, chapter 3, verse 21, the law was not ever able to impart life. Is the law contrary to the promises of God? Is that how this is going? May it never be again. For if a law had been given which was able to impart life, then righteousness would indeed have been based on law. So he's given further explanation there in Galatians 3, verse 21. Instead, he says the law reveals sin, and it pronounces us guilty of sin, and it points us to the promise of salvation through faith, which the law itself outlines and promises. A a prophet like unto Moses is going to come, Deuteronomy 18, right? The, The just man, the righteous man shall live by faith. Abraham... Uh, received salvation by faith alone. These, these promises in this way of salvation, the law itself had taught these things. And so he says both the law itself and now the articulation of these truths through the gospel as we know it, it has torn down and destroyed the notion that the law could impart life and that keeping the law was a possible or sufficient means of obtaining or maintaining a right standing before God. The Galatians had heard. They'd embraced the gospel. They knew knew these things. And he summarizes that conclusion. That's what he's saying in verse 18. For if I rebuild what I have once destroyed, this idea that you can be saved by works, why would I rebuild that? I've destroyed that, shown you that the law doesn't teach that, proclaim the gospel to you that is contrary to that. I would prove myself to be a transgressor. If I go back to the law and try to build a system that even the law itself disagrees with, I'm just myself going to be inconsistent, a transgressor of the law. That's how he summarizes this conclusion. The law itself says salvation is by faith, the law itself says it cannot impart life. That comes through faith and trust in Christ, the gospel message. I can't rebuild that notion, Paul says. And here's where it gets theologically rich. The law that can't impart life, the law that includes all of these great promises of redemption, is also the law that requires death for the sinner. Paul says, I I have embraced that the law and the gospel both say the wages of sin is death. But I have also embraced that Jesus Christ bore my sin. I also embrace that he has paid my death sentence. The law didn't impart life, but the law did require death. And through the law's requirement of death, a death Jesus died in our place, I myself have died in Christ, by faith in Christ, through my union with Christ. And therefore, I have been forever separated from that punishment that death, that requirement of perfection that the law presents, which only condemns and could never grant life. That's what he's saying in verse 19. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. He's saying the law tells me how to put my faith in Christ alone. The law tells me it's only going to condemn me. And when it did, I found the one Right? By God's grace. Who died in my place. And now I can live to God. Because I've embraced and believed that Christ, who was promised to me in the law, has fulfilled all of the law's demands on my behalf. I am no longer bound by those standards, by that curse, by that penalty. I am no longer dead to God because of the law. I am alive to God through Jesus Christ. Because through the law, I died to the law. So that I might live to God. That's the hope. That's the gospel. That's the promise of God. Now back to verse 16. A person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. How can all of this be true? Why? What is it that we embrace through faith? Is it this reality that in Christ we have redemption? We have believed, like Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1.30, but by his doing you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, and righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption. And again, the key phrase there is, is the Romans 6 truth, is what Galatians 2.20 summarizes. It's the in Christ Jesus. You are in Christ Jesus by his doing, who became wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. And and that's the key doctrine in all of this, right? This union with Christ. Grace Galatians 2.20 is really... Romans 6, in a nutshell. I have been crucified with Christ. When he died, he died according to the law's demands. When he died for me, I was rescued from the law's demands. I myself die to the law's demands and penalty. And it's no longer I who live. I can now live to God. Christ lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God. R- Romans 6 begins with the charge. So let's look at, look at Galatians 2.20. Maybe like just, just... Whatever you call that. Come out a little bit. Let's, let's look at the wider view. The wider view of Romans 6. right, Begins with that charge. Really the implication of the gospel. That the Christian does not continue in sin. And, and this is the implication of properly understanding and living out that union. Romans 6.3, do you not know? Now I'm reading Romans 6. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? To be immersed in a relationship with him means we are immersed into the death that he died to sin. Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. Not just united in His death, not just united in His burial, but united with Him in the likeness of His resurrection, so that we could walk in newness of life. Verse 6 of Romans 6, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with Him in order that our body of sin, or our flesh, or the sin that dwells in me, might be Done away with, rendered inoperative, made of no effect, have its authority abrogated and destroyed. Sin has no authority over us anymore, is the idea, so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. Right? He's no longer our master, that sin principle that dwells in our members. For he who has died is freed from sin. Christian, and we talked about this Saturday, that's who you are in Christ Jesus. But what Paul says is true about us positionally, he says has implications for us practically. Romans 6, verse 11, even so, now that we know all this, consider, reckon it to be true, recognize it as fact, and act accordingly. Consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. And therefore, don't let sin reign In your mortal body, so that you obey its lusts, and don't go on presenting the members of your body as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. Paul summarizes all of that by I've been crucified with Christ, and it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me and the life that I now live in the flesh, in my human weakness with this mortal body, I live by faith. I live believing. I live trusting in who Christ is and what He has done for me and, and what He is doing in and for me right now, living His life through me. So here's the brief outline I warned you about, how to live the life of faith, two necessary elements of a true, daily, vibrant life of faith. You must believe... Your union with Christ alone is what makes you right with God. We go back to the gospel. And you must believe that your union with Christ truly empowers you to live right before God. Paul has no concept of a theological belief in being in Christ or Christ in us that doesn't also impact the way that we think and the way that we live and the way that we We walk. There's never a separation in his mind, and there shouldn't be in ours, of the reality of being joined to Christ in his death and resurrection without the attendant reality, a necessary result of the living to God. It's all so that I might live to God. Verse 19. Notice how many times, just in verse 20, living comes up. I've been crucified. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. This union with Christ is all about how we live. Right? That's what he's, he's saying. All of those are present. The verbs there are all present tense as well, talking about living the ongoing, regular, daily life of God. And as we do that, we live it by faith. So here, here's the little phrase. I, I want you to catch this. Definitely don't miss this. What does it mean to live by faith? Well, it, it means that in every moment, like every moment I described, and we're gonna talk about it a little bit more, can hopefully make it practical, that that we know, we seek out, and we learn, and we believe, and we trust in the wisdom of God he's became for us wisdom and sanctification and all those things, right? So we, we seek out the knowledge of the truth and we believe it and we trust it and we obey it even if we don't understand why or even if we don't understand fully, even if we don't understand and we have to go to my brother or my sister or a family member or my pastor or a counselor. To find that truth that I need to know and believe and trust and cling to and live accordingly with. That's what it means to live by faith. Let me illustrate it, I hope, in a way that helps it make sense. Love your enemies. And we think, why? (laughs) I don't want to do that, do I? But if I'm going to live by faith in the Son of God, I have to do that. I have to believe that that is who he's called me to be and how he has called me to live. And I have to trust that that is the way that his glory is made manifest on the earth and through my life. And I have to to depend on him to help me do it. Because I don't feel like it on Sunday or Monday or Tuesday or Wednesday or any of those other days. I don't feel like loving my enemy, right? I might even need to pray a bit. God, help me. Help in my heart to desire even what you've called me to be and do. Because today I don't even desire to be what you've called me to, to be and do, to love my enemy. I don't even desire that right now, right? So to live by faith means... To, to know and believe and embrace and trust and then depend on God to help us live out the realities of truth, of who he is and what he's done and what, even what he desires for us. And sometimes what he desires for us isn't complicated. Loving your enemies, it's not complicated. Children, obey your parents, not complicated. Fathers, don't exasperate your children. Not complicated. It's not hard to understand, but it's, it's hard to live out. Right? And that's why believing is more than just knowing those commands. The living by faith means knowing it and embracing it. Trusting that that's God's manifold wisdom. For me, it will result in my blessing, even if I don't know how. And I'm going to depend on him to help me live it out because it's hard All of that is wrapped up in that phrase, live by faith in the Son of God. Now, here's the beauty. Who loved you and gave himself up for you. That takes us back to the rest of the chapter where we're asking ourselves, why is it so important to get the whole, you're not accepted by God by your works, and you don't maintain your standing before God? By your works. Because who is sufficient for these things? Right? Who who can love their enemies and not falter? Right? I need to know every time I fail to love my enemy as I think God's called me to, that he still loves me and gave himself up for me. Because I need his mercy again. Right? I, I need his mercy again and again and again and again. And I don't maintain my standing before God because of my perfect walk of faith that he's called me to because I don't have a perfect walk of faith. Neither do you. But he loves me and he gave himself for me. And I rest in that as I strive to live for God. To live out the implications of my union with Christ. That I've been crucified with him and it's no longer I who live but Christ who lives in me. I have no idea where I am at in my notes right now. Let's just turn the page and pretend I know. That is the the beauty of the gospel and of his love for you. God will never love you more than he loves you right now. You can't do anything to well, you can't do anything to separate yourself from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, right? That's what Romans 8 tells us. He who did not spare his Son, but delivered him up for us all, how we not also freely with him, give us all things. That's his heart toward us while we're trying to live this life of faith. So let's, let's step back and say, okay, you've described love for your enemies to help me understand what live by faith in the Son of God looks like. What about you? who have been battling that besetting sin of anger or overeating or lust, pornography, laziness. Because it doesn't, right? It doesn't feel like Jesus is living through you. You're starting to wonder if you even have faith because you've been fighting this besetting sin for so long. Do you believe? I mean, let's go back Nas. Do you really believe that your union with Christ, you are spiritually joined to Him? Is that Do you really believe that that's what makes you right with Him? Because when you start to doubt your faith because of of sin, you're actually beginning to doubt even that, that your standing before God is made secure by your union with Him. Are you really knowing and believing that when you do give in to your anger or your lust or your overeating or your laziness, are are you even believing that that does not separate you from the love of God. Faith says, no, I am his, I'm his. Faith reckons it to be true, even when it's hard, even when it doesn't seem consistent. Faith also has to keep saying, my life is not my own. Faith has to keep striving to live in dependence upon Christ, faith is going to seek out the knowledge that it needs and the help that it needs to overcome anger or lust or laziness or whatever it is. And and this is part of the importance of living in a redemptive community to have relationships with people that you can just be honest with and transparent with because When you're dealing with a besetting sin, you're so emotionally downtrodden sometimes that seeking the truth doesn't even feel worth it. We know it is, but you don't feel like it. Sometimes we just need to go, man, I am stuck. I'm so stuck, I don't feel like getting unstuck because I don't feel like there's any hope for me. Help me. Can you help me? And you you seek out someone who's going to bring you to those truths, the very truths that you need to to know and learn and believe and embrace and strive to live out in dependence upon him. And I said it a few times this weekend. This isn't a spiritual Jedi mind trick, right? It is just part of being prayerful and humble and dependent to, to learn those things that we need to learn and to beg the Lord to enable us to live it out, to fill our minds and hearts with the realities of his love when we don't. But it's hard. It's hard. We let our hearts linger on our sin. We begin to minimize our sin. We begin to think, especially when we have besetting sins, I'm basically a good Christian with this one little problem. That's not a mindset God wants us to embrace. He's like, no, let's battle that one. Let's battle that one that you've been battling for so long let's let's fight it get some help put off that and renew your mind think differently about it figure out what is the opposite virtue and and strive to put that on in your life with the help of others again maybe the besetting sin isn't yours right you're the person who's discouraged because your your spouse or your children are living lives of foolishness or sin and the possibility of public shame is there. What does it look like to live by faith if that's you? Would exposing their sin, would, would getting them help maybe cause your circumstances to be even worse? Maybe. But maybe trusting, believing, knowing that enabling them to, to continue to live in sin without accountability isn't the wisest approach. Do you believe, maybe, as you're dealing with the shame of it, there we are back into our context again, right? i got this shame I'm, I'm bearing because of my family. When you bear that shame that really isn't yours, are you really believing that your acceptance before God is gospel acceptance on faith alone? Or are you really thinking, no, God, accept, God would accept me more if my family didn't have all these problems? That's how you're feeling in the moment. Put that off. Cling to Christ. Know that he will empower you to, and can empower you to make hard choices. To live faithfully before him, even bearing up under some of the potential circumstances that might arise from those hard choices. That's part of the believing and trusting, right? The knowing and embracing and believing and trusting. Teenager. Your parents may have rules that are unfair. I don't know. But here's the thing. Living by faith in the Son of God says there is wisdom to be had by submitting myself to my parents. Short of my parents asking me to sin, I I, I need to trust that God's will and God's ways are best. That it's good for my heart to learn how to come under maybe even the unreasonable authority of another. But maybe... Maybe believing, embracing, and trusting and putting on virtue would cause you to step back and have a little humility and and say, well, maybe their standards aren't as unreasonable as I think. Maybe they love me. (laughs) Maybe they're actually trying to protect me from something. Maybe they've been around the block a couple times and they know how hard life can get if I am allowed to give myself to certain things. Maybe they actually love me put on those virtues. It's not just about submitting because you think they're unreasonable. It's not about just discontented resignation to what you have to do. Don't let it be that. Right? Learn how to love and respect and honor your parents as you do that. That's the, the renew out of which the put-on will, will follow. You parents who have those kids that, man, I just don't know what to do. It never ends. Day after day after day. Naughty after naughty after naughty. Right? Do you really know that your acceptance before God is not dependent on you having happy and obedient children all the time? Do you really believe that? I think that's often where we need to start. Some of the anger and the frustration and the The sins that we commit against our children are often, they grow right out of lacking belief that my righteousness or my acceptance before God or maybe my acceptance before others isn't dependent on my performance as a parent, which is completely dependent on my children's performance as a child. Right? But it's not. God's called you to be faithful. And faithful sometimes takes endurance, and perseverance. Oh, I've often sat with parents and said, "Well, I think here's here's what God's Word says, and I'm not going to do a parenting seminar here. But here's some things that God's Word says." And they'll say, "I tried that; it doesn't work." I'm like, "Oh, well, God doesn't tell you to try things. If it works, God tells you how to exercise wisdom in parenting, right? There's there's guidelines and things He's given us about instructing them and." feeding the word to them and disciplining them. And he's called you to those things. Here's, here's where the scriptures speak about you. Your job is just to be faithful in those things and pray and depend because you can't change the heart of a child anyway. So, but, but God's given you means. So you be faithful and say, God, I'm so thankful my acceptance before you is, isn't dependent on my, my works and I'm just trying to be faithful. Help me to be faithful. Oh, and please change my children. Let him love Jesus sooner rather than later, right? Be faithful. That's what I think living by faith looks like. It's believing what he's called me to be and do, and faithfully just living it out in obedience, trusting him to work through it, that his wisdom is ultimate. You with the chronic physical problem, no diagnosis. What does living by faith look like? Oh, so hard, uh, that situation. Paul says, we do not lose heart, though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed, day by day. 2 Corinthians 4, 16-18, right? Momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory, far beyond all comparison. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, the things which are not seen are eternal, a dependent, prayerful, humble, trusting, bearing up under trial. Life is hard. It's hard in our human weakness. But the life that you live in the human weakness of your flesh, we live by faith. We believe, yes, God is doing something in my soul. And we ask God to do something in my soul through that trial. Right? It doesn't mean you can't seek answers. But you know that in it, God's love for you never changes. He's died to pay the penalty for your sinful responses to your pain, your frustration at not having a, a diagnosis. He's also died to, to overcome the full effects of sin in the world, including your suffering and sorrow. Similarly, you've struggled with that emotional up and down of anxiety or depression. How can you live by faith? How can you How can you press forward toward God and toward your God-given responsibilities in life when some days you don't feel like getting out of bed? But there's still this element of live by faith, of of seeking out the knowledge of who God is and leaning into him in that that emotional struggle and believing who he is. There's a sense in which, right, every time we experience emotional struggle, Uh, dysfunction, that's not a bad word actually to use in a context like that. There's something that we're forgetting about the character and the nature and the attributes and the promises of God. When it says, fear not for I am with you, right? There's there's some element when we experience fear and worry and anxiety to to a, a, a sinful degree, there's some element of not trusting in that reality that God is with us. I'm not saying it's easy to believe it in the moment, but that's what God calls us to do. Believe in who I am and my power and that I am with you. Believe that he is inviting you to himself in all of your emotional struggles, right? Because he's a sympathetic high priest. That's who he is. He sympathizes with our weaknesses always and forever, right? So he's in our emotional struggles. He's inviting us to himself in that and live by faith in the Son of God. So I'm going to believe that. I don't feel like believing it today. It doesn't even seem real to me today, which is, again, why we need those redemptive relationships, that friend to come alongside us. I'm going to believe it for you, and I'm going to cry out to God on your behalf. I'm going to pray with you right now that he would help you to know it and believe it and embrace it and trust it, that he would help you right now to live by faith in the Son of God who loves you and gave himself for you. All of that to say, just to kind of land the plane here, right? Live by faith in the Son of God. It means that we, in whatever our struggle is, and I've described a few and not in enough detail probably to provide you a lot of help, but hopefully in enough detail to set a pattern in your mind of what live by faith looks like in whatever struggle or sin that you're dealing with, right? It, it means to find that truth to believe and meditate on it because faith is believing, right? It means to find that promise of God to embrace and put your your trust in Him in that promise because He is faithful. Right, Find that promise. Maybe it's as simple as find that command to obey, know it. Again, we said less yesterday that the Christian life is a whole lot more complex than just obeying the commands, but it's not less than that. So sometimes live by faith in the Son of God says, I'm going to do this because God's called me to do it, not because I understand why. Or find that attribute of God that is so critical to to believe and trust in that reality about who God is that is so critical in your situation and purpose in your heart to lean into it and ask him to shape your heart to trust it and believe it. That's live by faith in the Son of God. Believing, embracing, trusting, and depending on him to shape you through and through. Now I think practically you can... You're putting off, renewing, putting on. There's practical ways that you attack that. We talked a little bit about that yesterday. But that's the essence, I think, of live by faith. The Son of God. Believing, embracing, obeying, trusting. Because he loves you. And he gave his life for you. Let's pray. God, we thank you for, oh, just the purity and the simplicity of devotion to Christ. and yet in our uh, lives and hearts, when uh, we are battling the weakness of our flesh, God, it's hard to believe and embrace and trust and depend on you. God, I pray that for this church, church body that you uh, would help them grow in uh, their understanding of these things and uh, perhaps even more importantly, grow in their Desire and ability to come alongside one another and transparently share their burdens and to compassionately help uh, one another live by faith in you because you have loved us and you have given yourself for us. Thank you for the truth of the gospel, and that the truth of that gospel is not just uh, forgive and welcome us into heaven, but it's one that unites us to Him in the likeness of His resurrection so that we might walk in newness of life. Uh, Help us to do that daily by your grace and for your glory.